everyone, welcome to the Naked Security Podcast, episode four. I'm Charlotte Williams, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Matt Boddy. Hello. And Paul Ducklin. Hello, Matt. Hello, Charlotte. Okay, so this week, uh, we are going to be talking about the e-fail email security vulnerability. Um, we're going to also be talking about problems with a security hold in Red Hat Linux. And the third topic is something that I never thought we'd hear on the Naked Security podcast, but we are going to be talking about how sniffer dogs can play a role in cybersecurity. I'm looking forward to that story because it it took me by surprise. But let's do let's do the complicated ones. Let's start with e-fail. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) so much thought must have gone into that name. Uh, We've got a vulnerability in email. What shall we call it? Yeah. Let's go E A Ale, E Bale, E Kale, E Dale. Ah, E Bale. That's <laughs> Yes, <one>. well <laughs> done. So come on then, you come up with a better name. What would you have called it? I would have gone for something that was a little more self explanatory, but just as catchy. I would have called it unlikely to affect most people data leakage flaw in open PGP and or SMIME when used with certain popular email that, clients. That is so much more catchy. And yeah. then, of course, yeah. fail at the end. The problem to me with the name e-fail, which, because it, it implies that, well, email has e-fail does, is that this particular vulnerability only applies if you're using a mail client, so not webmail, and you're using OpenPGP or SMIME, which are two security add-ons that most people, as far as I know, a vast majority of people don't use. Okay, so you've just mentioned SMIME and OpenPGP. Yes. And I actually read it in your article. Yes. Um, But can you just tell me a bit more about what they are? They are extensions, if you like, that you can use with email to add an extra layer of encryption so that when you email certain of your friends and contacts, maybe your activist friends or if you're a journalist, some of your contacts, that your entire message is additionally encrypted over and above any other encryption that might be going on in the mail. It's trying to provide that end-to-end encryption so that even if someone sniffs out your email, even if you're going through an ISP or in a country that's doing surveillance, your email is encrypted before it enters the system and only decrypted when it leaves the system at the other end. A lot of a lot of customers that I tend to work with, um, actually, they don't end up implementing it because they can only encrypt internal communication, meaning that if they want to encrypt communication that goes out of the organization, which is the more dangerous communication to them, they, they have to agree on exchanging keys with the, the third party that they're wanting, wanting to exchange emails with. And it just becomes far too complex and convoluted to get that working, to communicate between different IT departments like that. And it just ends up not happening. Would you agree that they, if it was for particular communications with particular individuals, they probably wouldn't use email at all? Because they wouldn't yeah. want those emails even to be on record as having been sent. They probably would use something like signal right because our email is quite an it's an old method of communication right it's nothing's encrypted by default and it feels so safe and secure to use but actually yeah something like signal or a chat a chat app where it is encrypted end-to-end by default perhaps much much more secure method of communication however let's say you have decided you want to use smime or open pgp the idea is that emails you send to other people that you have agreed keys with 
they're going to be the only people who can read those emails and you'd expect them to be strongly encrypted from end to end. And indeed, this attack doesn't actually crack the encryption. It's a rather cunning sort of trick. One of the ways is you take a message that's already been sent. So you need to be able to sniff out the person's messages. So you need to be in a surveillance position where you've got a copy of the encrypted message. You can't crack it. You can't decrypt it. So what you do is you make some tweaks to it. You send it again. And what happens is at the other end, if you're lucky, when the person opens it, their email client decrypts it for them for display. And at that point, what the trick does is it causes their email client to leak the decrypted contents of the message back out onto the internet, typically by relying on the person at the other end having HTML email rendering turned on. You modify it in such a way that when it's decrypted, it kind of turns into a web page with external links and the external links are the way that you exfiltrate the data. And then they have an e-fail. And then, yes. Uh, so it's, now I get the name. Yeah. So it's, it's a little far-fetched, isn't it? And <laughs> I guess in the, in yeah. the effort to make the bug seem perhaps more serious to more people than it might otherwise have been. So should I be worried about this? Someone who's never heard of SMIME and OpenPGP? Is this Almost certainly not, because I don't know of any email products or services that you might use, say at home, that have these things in and on by default in a way that you wouldn't know. And the guys who found this vulnerability and came up with the amazing name and the rather 1980s looking logo that they cooked up for it, uh, they do admit that this is primarily something that could sh- should concern people like journalists, activists, whistleblowers, and so forth, where they're trying to add this super secure extra layer of encryption to email. And those people, if you've got HTML rendering on in your email, turn it off because you're doing yourself a disservice and go and read up about security. That's a harsh statement. Yes, I think I'll edit it out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay, I'm going to have to stop you there so that we can move on to our next topic, the Red Hat Linux bug. Yes. So we know that the bug affects DHCP. Correct. But what is DHCP? I thought you might ask that. (laughs) Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol. So DHCP is a way that a computer, that when you first connect it to a network like a Wi-Fi network in a coffee shop, instead of that network saying, oh, go to your network configuration settings, type in the following IP number, 192.0.2.63 or something like that, it just automatically configures it. So it sends out a special kind of broadcast packet to the local network. And if there is a thing called a DHCP server on the network, that server comes back and said, by the way, here are all the settings that we want you to use. The computer then configures its own network And from then on, it's a fully-fledged member of the community online. That's what DHCP is all about. And it's why most people at home have probably never typed in an IP address, an IP number in their lives, because they've never needed to. The system's taken care of it. But if there are two DHCP servers in my environment, then they'll be fighting to, to, to give me an address. And there's a bit of a race condition, so which I'd be waiting for an IP address from either of those DHCP servers, and the one that wins to give me that address, I'll then I'll then receive that address from that. And what what this bug could do is, if I receive an IP address from one of the bad servers, a bad guy that's hosting one of these DHCP servers, 
then that could contain some code that then could execute on my machine. It's a bit tricky. This it's the 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 flaw is not in the DHCP server. That's the thing that sends out the configuration information. It's in the DHCP client inside a Red Hat package called Network Manager, which is their normal way of setting up a computer. And that's the thing that receives the reply and processes it. And normally the reply would say something like, your IP number should be digits here. Your host name, the computer name that we want you to use is string of small string of characters here. But it turns out that you can actually send other DHCP replies. Like, for example, you can say, your web proxy that we want you to use is... And then instead of putting an IP address, you put, oh, no, forget IP addresses. Actually, here's a command. Run it for me. And the DHCP client doesn't realize that you've stopped with data and started with a command. It runs the command, which is why it's called remote code execution or command injection, because you've taken data and you've sent it a command instead. And worst, because network configuration commands on Linux almost always require sysadmin privileges, the script that does all of this runs as root. So basically, a rogue DHCP server on the network can basically send a reply to a computer that's just come online, and instead of configuring it for the network, it says, oh, by the way, run this command, which could be create a username for me, let me log in remotely, do something bad, reformat yourself or anything that the crook wants. So the key thing here is actually that there needs to be a rogue DHCP server in your environment. I yes, that, I, that does reduce the severity a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it, yeah. Somebody can't be on the other side of the world. It's not like there's a login prompt that if you type in funny characters, it lets you log in without a password. You have to pretty much have physical access to, to the local network. So firstly, the bad guy needs to be on the local network, like yes. you say. And secondly, they need to be able to run a rogue DHCP server, which can be countered in the switch. It can be countered in your network switch where you can look for rogue DHCP servers or just specify the DHCP server which your IP address should be coming from. That's right. If you at home, if you've got a home router or a small business router and switch probably doesn't have that kind of advanced features. But in a medium sized network, if Loosely speaking, would you say, Matt, the more expensive your network switch, the more firewall-like features it's got. And I know that some switches, and you might want to check with your vendor, they do have a feature. For example, you can say only the whatever the computer that's plugged into port 7 is allowed to do DHCP. And that way, if someone tries to connect a rogue DHCP server, they won't succeed. After all, if you can get a rogue DHCP server onto somebody's network, you've already done something very bad haven't you because although you can't necessarily inject commands into random servers and laptops on the network you can certainly mess up the network you can knock people offline you can route them through different networks you can play with their dns but any remote code execution is pretty bad so you definitely want to patch this red hat patched it almost immediately very very rapid response make sure you're equally rapid in deploying the patch so yes, if you've got any Red Hat, Fedora, CentOS in your estate, this is definitely of an issue to you. If you're at home and you haven't got any Linux at all, you've got Windows or Macs, then even if you've got a router, many of which actually run Linux internally, this almost certainly doesn't affect you because I'm guessing here it's very unlikely that the the version of Linux that's running in your router includes this particular Red Hat network manager package. 
because Matt, I know you were looking at this earlier because you you were, you wanted to know the answer for your own purposes. Other distros, for example, is it things based on SUSE, Debian, and so forth? They have something called DH client, but the code is similar but different to Red Hat in a way that they're not vulnerable. Is that correct? Probably yeah. not vulnerable. So, so the the article I found said that they're most likely not vulnerable. Okay, so thank you guys. Um, now we're going to go on to our sort of out of the box topic. Um, out of the kennel. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, you should work for the same team that researched e-fail with puns like those. Yes, just to explain to our American listeners, a kennel is a doghouse. For some reason in English, we have a more complicated word. Doghouse is much simpler, isn't it? It explains precisely what it is and what it does. And ironically, we have the expression in British English, oh, you're in the doghouse. Yeah. Although we call them work? kennels. This has nothing to do with cybersecurity. This, but no. Yet... We are it, out of the dog It does, house. yes. Here we are. We're talking about sniffer dogs. And as you said, it's not a techie term. We're talking about actual sniffer dogs. So Doug the dog. Is that Doug D-U-G, like Dig Doug? Or <laughs> Doug like D-O-U-G? D-O-U-G. Oh, Doug. Yeah. Doug the dog. Doug the dog. They were working with the e-fail guys. <laughs> they were definitely working with Okay, so Doug the dog is our <laughs> cybersecurity topic number three because he actually sniffed out a USB drive that was hidden inside the uh, bedroom of a of a suspected school hacker. How on earth do sniffer dogs sniff out USB? Because yeah. yeah, this wasn't a hard disk, was it? It was just like a USB stick. Yeah, and it was a little. So it's a bit of plastic, a bit of silicone on a tiny little chip. Surely in the average household, the dog will be running around finding the remote control, the keyboard, 17 mobile phones, a couple of Nintendos. How does it know to go for a USB drive? It would be interesting to know what components in a USB that tell it apart from, like you said, anything else, you know, the, the electronics in a screen or in a keyboard. or Maybe the idea is the dog goes and finds electronic components based on the smell of the chip or some chemical that's used in the manufacturing process. But it's quite amazing. And it's a good reminder that physical security is still relevant in the world of cybersecurity. And that if you drop a USB drive and someone really wants to find it and you haven't encrypted it... Sniffer um, dog, first thing. Sniffer dog. It's actually quite a, dare I say it, a schoolboy attack that he used as well. He, is, he used the basics of phishing, didn't he? He sent out an email to all of his teachers and that email contained a link and that link led to a website that said, please put in your username and password. Yes. It shows how effective these types of phishing emails are, unfortunately. It does also suggest that the school wasn't using two-factor authentication, doesn't it? it does if, he was able to get a, if he was able to get a password and then use it from somewhere else, I'd imagine that if they had decent two-factor authentication where there was a code on the phone, that would have made it much harder for him. That, that's not to say, well, the school bears the blame and he should be let off. Because his dad just said, oh, I don't see what the problem is, didn't he? Yeah, I think he used the words, he was just poking around. Just poking around the school system. Sorry you're in hospital covered with bruises, Matt. I was just shadow boxing and I slipped. <laughs> 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 yeah. Even poking around in most countries is illegal, isn't it? Just going and looking because you don't need to modify data to be able to abuse it or sell it on later. Poking, there's a difference between poking around though and setting up a website <laughs> yes. that is designed to harvest credentials. 
I'm guessing that his dad didn't fully understand what he'd done at that point when he said that. This is quite an interesting story because, um, was it this week or last week, uh, we wrote up about how IBM have banned USB drives. Yes, that's right. It appears that the the, uh, chief security officer has just said, okay, guys, it's the network, it's the cloud or nothing, and no USB drives. I'm not sure what I think of that. I get the idea. Sometimes the easiest solution is the full-on one. Sometimes it's difficult to see progress when it's happening. Is is this progress? Just banning USB drives doesn't stop people sharing the wrong stuff, does it? No. All I can say, though, is I bet that kid who had the cops sniffing around with Doug the dog is wishing he used the cloud. (laughs) I bet he is. (laughs) But then would the cloud service provider have turned it over to the cops beforehand? Who knows? Depends where it's stored. This is another topic for another podcast. I also bet he wished he'd stuck (laughs) it in the ceiling because I don't know how long good Doug the dog is at climbing. (laughs) Let's hope that he's not a climber. I think dogs can be trained to use ladders. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, thank you both for sharing your expertise with us and thank you to everyone for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Naked Security or on our website at nakedsecurity.sophos.com and as always, until next time... Stay stay secure. secure. That was awful. (laughs) 